I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode three, The Domestic Church and the New Evangelization. What is the domestic church, David? Okay, so this is um, an idea of uh, that we can pray at home, and there is a place within the home uh, that is a focus for prayer, and ideally uh, liturgical worship. So for ordinary people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a chapel set up and you're able to have mass, uh, but uh, the 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 common description of this is an icon corner. It's a visual focus for prayer, that a home altar of some description. Um, and usually that means that there'll be a cross and certain images and we can talk about the content of those. Um, but it's a place that is uh, permanently set up as a focus for prayer. So even when we're not praying, um, it's there as a reminder to us. Um, and the church, of course, is as much about what we do as the, the material aspects of it. So. The idea is then that we pray regularly in the home uh, in that place Um, and that might be personal prayer or it might be together praying the list of the hours for example okay so domestic we're just talking about in the home this is uh, something that mirrors what we do when we go to church yes it's you might think of it as an unfolding of what happens at the the heart of everything is the, is the Sunday Mass, the Sunday Liturgy. Um, and there are ways in which we can take this out into the week. So liturgically, that's what the Divine Office or the Liturgy of the Hours does. It's, it's, it's um, stepping into the Mass, if you like, at certain hours. It's an extension of it out into the week and different times of the day. And as lay people, we can uh, participate in that and the... the uh, it is legitimate liturgy. It's, it's uh, fully liturgical if we pray that as lay people, and we can do that in the home. So um, it's dispersed in time, if you like, and geographically. So we can do it wherever we are. Okay, so this podcast kind of has two main focuses the way of beauty. We're talking a lot about art and culture, and I think that uh, the idea behind the domestic church, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. The idea is that the the family has an important role to play in the broader culture, and so having something in the in the home uh, that this is this has been an emphasis of the church. Yes, and um, this connection. The, the other area of focus of this talk, of course, is the new evangelization, um, which is a become a buzzword, um, and. Lots of I mean, dioceses have offices of the new evangelization, and um, it's interesting. Cardinal Ratzinger, as he as was, and later to become Pope Benedict, wrote a little paper uh, on this. And um, this is you can find this on the EWTN website. It's not widely available. It's just about seven pages. Um, it's there will be a link on my blog for this. Um, but in this, he talks about. Uh, what the new evangelization is and really uh, he's describing principles that go right the way back to the early church It's a refocus on what evangelization has always been that we are personally transformed through prayer um, and shine with the light of Christ and then um, we show people what he describes as the art of joyful living if Christianity is worth doing it's because it makes us happier. That's the basis upon which we make any decision, ultimately. Um, now, the, the place of the family, he also said elsewhere uh, that he felt that the, the family is the, is the school of prayer for children, um, but the home, particularly, is the place where, this, uh, where children will see their parents pray, for example. And so that it is important, therefore, that... Um, that this prayer in the home is done not only because it teaches the children to pray and teaches the people to pray, but it becomes the um, the driving force for this transformation. It, it, 
it ensures that we don't just become Sunday Catholics, if you see what I mean. Um, and so the, the home is very important. I would like to make a point that, that um, when people talk about home prayer, there is a strong focus on the family, quite rightly, because uh, families are neglected and it's under attack in modern culture. But for those who are single, and there are lots of people like that, that um, I don't want them to feel neglected. <laughs> so I would hear lots of talk about sort of domestic prayer and the home, and there is an assumption that it always means the family. The, the home is where we live, and, and we can be part of community um, as single people. And the prayer that we uh, participate in helps us to create, in a sense, the fellowship that we seek. Uh, we become people who are, in get, we could do this if we're living with others. It doesn't need to be a family. We can pray together. We live in a situation here where there's different people and there's families and we do get together and pray the liturgy of the hours when we can and I know that I do it separately um, even if you're on your own in a bed sit or something or uh, uh, what do they call them in America I forgot the the, um, the smallest apartment you can get and you're on your own a studio studio that's it yeah um, then you can connect with with others around you. you you can find others who have a similar outlook and pray with them um, and invite people to your homes have a have a meal and have a prayer pray vespers very simple um, and, that, and this does engender community and it is through uh, community and communion uh, that we are transformed personally and then we can become those people that others will look at, examples of the faith, despite ourselves, this is the amazing thing, despite ourselves, people whom others might look at and say, what's he got, or what's she got, there's something about them, and it might just arouse curiosity. So you mentioned that the new evangelization has become something of a buzzword, and I think that I've been a little bit confused about what this means, but, uh, but you can clarify this, you know, am I, am I doing it wrong if I'm just going on Facebook and Twitter and clobbering people with Bible <laughs> verses? Um, what, what makes it new? What uh, makes it new? Well, well the, the way, I think this term was coined by John Paul II. And what he was talking about were, uh, was the need for uh, people in the West, Catholics in the West, to work out how to communicate the the joys of the faith and the uh, the wonderful treasures that we have to people who are what you might call post-christian so this is people who are in the west their parents or their grandparents might have been christian but they are really firmly in the atheistic secular culture um, but they think they know enough about Christianity to know they don't like it. Mm. And they're, they're particularly resistant to uh, what you might call traditional forms of evangelization, but you, those forms that um, people very often think of, preaching, uh, proclaiming the word in the conventional way, will not, is, will, is, might work, but it's, it's less likely to work. It'll just turn them off. And so we need to find new ways. Um, and so I think social media, that we can reach people by any means of communication and social media touches a lot of people so it's, it can be a great tool. But that isn't the essence of it. it, it you know, even, even the Pope has a Twitter feed or whatever, you know, he's, he tweets for example. Um, but it really is about this, um, how do we focus on this post-Christian society? It's a new problem that we have. Um, and Benedict, um, uh, he's talked about this and always he's really looking not for new methods but a refocus on the methods of the early church that's described in the Acts of the Apostles, for example, where there's extraordinary accounts of, you know, 3,000 were, were, were converted on that day, this sort of thing. So, and, and we're told that people converted to Christianity because they loved each other. And, that's what we have to do. We have to be examples of love. And so he's, he's kind of telling us, let's look at ourselves. And mm. he does connect the, the domestic church. He says this will be the driving force for the new evangelization. Yeah, so we don't want to forget that uh, Christianity in its original 
uh, phase and to the present has always been a missionary faith. It's about you know, the, the, the great call is to go out and, and make disciples out of all men. Yes. And so today we're talking about the domestic church and what you can do within your home, but it's always with an eye towards how it transforms you or empowers you to go out and be a more effective missionary. Yes. Um, and perhaps I'll just talk a little bit about the history of the domestic church and then I'll come back and connect that later to the, the new evangelization. But um, there, there is a long-standing tradition of home altars uh, and it, it's interesting that I, I saw a talk that showed a mosaic of a Roman home with a home altar and the point that the speaker was making it was a, it was a a conference on liturgy that I went to and the point that he was making was that um, there have always been altars in the home places of prayer and if they had masses for example in the home it was unlikely to be at the dinner table um, as some people have suggested but actually would have been at the the altar um, so I don't know we know for certain and of course not all early Christians were Romans it was in a Roman society but I don't know how the, Ro the homes in uh, the, what we now call Israel for example were, um, were organized historically but certainly we can say that, that um, the idea of prayer in the home is very old and the idea of a place set aside for prayer uh, is very old too. Um, so another point that's worth making is that um, my friend uh, Father Sebastian Carnazza, who teaches at uh, the scripture classes at Pontifex University, he um, always makes the point that um, the uh, Easter liturgy, uh, there's, a, there's a, a growing tradition of people doing seder meals, for example, reenacting the Passover meal, uh, somehow connecting it to the Last Supper uh, today. And, and he always says to us that the reenactment of all that is, to, is fully taken care of within the liturgy of the church. You have Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and, and of course Easter Sunday. And that is the place to participate in the, the, the first Mass, if you like. Um, and another interesting historical note that I read is that the Seder meal is not probably what Jesus participated in, I, I was told, that that's part of the dispersed temple worship that was pro probably instituted when the, with the destruction of the temple hmm. in AD 70, something like that. Um, now, I don't know, I, I, don't want to, I don't know the details, of it, but the point I'm making is that the liturgy of the church, the established liturgy of the church, is the full participation. And if we want to do something at home, there's, there is, we can do Vespers that night. <laughs> there is there's official liturgy we can do or prayer that uh, is based on that. Um, and that goes on through the year as well. There's, there's morning prayer, there's Vespers. And that is how we participate in what the, the prayer of the church. I, I'm not clear on the, the connection between the, the, the Seder and the these altars in the homes, I guess the okay. idea is that... So, uh, yeah, so the, the, it's commonly, you get these seder meals. People t sometimes do what they feel is a reenactment of the Last Supper, and they do it at the dinner table, and it's as though mass was said at dinner or something like that in the early church, hmm. and that's what Christ instituted. And so alongside pictures of the home altar in these mosaics, they showed the arrangement of the dinner table, which is these sort of chaise long arrangements in a U form, a, a triclinium, I think they called it, uh, reclining in threes. Um, so that, that's really a little aside uh, that um, the, the home altar is, is this separate place for worship. And as far as we can work out, it always has been. Um, not that there weren't difficulties in the early church. In his letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul, um, he admonish he, he describes the mass actually but the reason he does that is because there's something funny going on i don't know precisely what they were they were doing um so there were various practices and 
St. Paul was trying to re-correct people, and he reiterates what the Mass is. If I can read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're referring to this section where he is describing some sort of abuse that's going on or, or something that, that is, in his mind, not what not the proper celebration. He says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise the fact that your meetings are doing more harm than good. First of all, I hear that when you meet as a church, there are divisions among you, and to a degree I believe it. There, there have to be factions among you in order that also those who are approved among you may be known. When you meet in one place, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own supper, and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. Do you not have houses in which you can eat and drink? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and make those who have nothing feel ashamed? What can I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this matter, I do not praise you. So what do we think is going on here? It's, it's like there's some kind of, they're having meals where the cool kids are going and having luxurious, or you know, the, the, the wealthy people are having uh, a meal off in one place. And or I, I always kind of wondered what was I, going on here. Yes, I'm not sure either. I'm not sure precisely what he's referring to. And um, the only reason that, that what I glean from that, shall we say, is the fact that um, it's a little hazy. Even at the, you know, it took a while for this to be established, and right from the beginning, um, it, you know, there were people doing things that weren't what was intended in in the home. So the point I want to make is that it's 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 good to pray at home, um, and sti- for the official liturgy, if you like, um, stick to the divine office and the mass. Mass, unless you've got a, a proper place to do it, yeah. is in the church. Yeah, um, and there's no, there's no need to bring the dinner table into it. I see, right, and it does. I think it gets a little bit clearer in the next section where he's talking about what he handed on, what he received from the Lord. Is that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was handed over took bread and after he had given thanks broke it and said, "This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And that sounds familiar to anyone who's been to mass because yeah. it's it's the it's the tradition that's been passed on for two thousand years. Yes, uh, I want to go back to John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, when he introduced this idea of the new evangelization. Uh, I looked up this quote that stuck in my mind from when I was going through my own formation process and learning a little bit about the new evangelization. Uh, he quotes the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he says, uh, talks about how Jesus invited uh, the, the apostle to put out into the deep for a catch, duke and altum. And he repeats this phrase throughout. Uh, kind of, it, it's a mysteriously compelling call to kind of cast out your nets into the deep for a, a large catch of, you know, the, the fish are sort of the, the symbol of the the people who they'll, who they'll be going out and, and uh, capturing, in a sense, with this message, pr- providing a completely new way of living and, uh, and, and you know, capturing their, their hearts and their minds. Um, he says, you'll become fishers of men. So the quote, uh, I'll just read from, uh, from the, the speech where I think Pope John Paul might have been introducing this idea to call every Christian to take up this missionary missionary mandate. And he said, at the beginning of the new millennium and at the close of the great jubilee, during which we celebrated the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Jesus and a new stage of the church's journey begins, our hearts ring out with the words of Jesus when one day, after speaking to the crowds from Simon's boat, he invited the apostle to put out into the deep for a catch. Uh, so this is kind of a unique time that we're living in, and he coins this phrase, the new evangelization, to capture some sort of, uh, you know, a, a renewed sense of a dynamic and living faith. Um, so let's again, let's try, let's link the new evangelization with what's going on uh, in the home or what, what can be done in the home in order to, you know, what's, what's the connection between praying in the home and casting into the deep because they seem like two different activities. Yes, I, I think that um, we have to become those fishers of men, and that involves a transformation in us. Um, and the actual method by which we capture them will be different for different people, 
and I, and I don't know that uh, I I have any ideas. I'm involved in lots of work uh, myself, so I've, I'm interested in art and trying to uh, follow the things that interest me. So everyone will have different ways in which they connect. But so much of it is really engaging with the world, I think, as you go about your business as this transformed person. And um, into the deep, it would be, the, in today's world, the, round, the world around us. That, that, that if I just step out the door here, um, that is um, atheistic, secular territory. And um, that is where people are who need to see me and need to, through my engagement with them, get some sense that, that I have a life that is worth living and that is joyful, um, if that is true. And so the, the way in which we focus on that, uh, Benedict says, is through prayer. Uh, that is where we, how we achieve that personal transformation. And he defines three sorts. Um, that He says that the well-balanced prayer life uh, should have uh, three different sorts of prayer. One is liturgical, so right at the center is the worship of God, uh, liturgical prayer. Um, then he, there's something called paraliturgical, uh, which is prayer that uh, very often devotions, perhaps done in common, certainly that other people are doing within the church, things like the rosary, the divine mercy chaplet, um, these sort of things that um, have the structure of the liturgy but are not actually the liturgy. Um, now, these can be things that uh, can be elevated too high sometimes. They need to be understood as having their place as, for, as supportive to the worship of God. Um, so the practice, for example, of praying the, the rosary during Mass, which apparently used to go on at one point, uh, was discouraged because it's that's misunderstanding mm -hmm. the fact that the mass is primary and and so um, but parallel but nevertheless devotions and these stru structured prayers that we have are very important um, provided that they are in harmony with our main prayer which is the liturgy and then finally personal prayer uh, which is what we do in the in the the quiet of the home on our own and some of that will be spontaneous, some of that will be set formulas that we have that we devise for ourselves or we devise in conjunction with the spiritual director. And when we have all of this in place, then each of the two lesser forms, if you like, nourishes and uh, forms us to be better able to participate in the Mass. And the, um, the place of the domestic church clearly that's where we will do a lot of personal prayer. Uh, you can imagine that. But the, the, to come back to the images, and it, you know, as I mentioned, it's sometimes referred to as an icon corner. Um, though uh, it doesn't need to be the iconographic style, but images are a very important part of this um, and a place that is set aside and engaging the site and engaging the whole person because then all of us, uh, bodies and soul, um, you might say body, soul, and then an aspect of soul called the spirit, that highest aspect of the soul, um, is all in harmony with what we're doing, and then we can be transformed most fully. And this, um, in some ways, rejuvenates what we got from the Mass. It continues it and uh, is an additional source of grace to help us as we go out into the world during the course of the week but also prepares us and for the, in anticipation, if you like, of the next Mass that we go to, the next time we encounter, we, we have that encounter with the living God in the Mass. Um, so it's, it's both re, um, an unfolding of what preceded and uh, a deepening of the anticipation and pre preparation for what is to come. Um, and in the meantime, we are engaging, one hopes, with people in the community and they will be attracted to us and want what we have. Um, incidentally, if you want to know how to connect, I have this little lapel pin looking for ways to, for, to get people to ask me about it. I wear a little cross and that was at the suggestion of my pastor, which I try and make visible. And if that isn't visible, um, then I have a little lapel pin 
um, that I put on my jacket, which has the face of Christ on it. Um, and I've done that deliberately just to bear witness without being in your face so that people might be aware that I'm Christian. And then, of course, I hope that the, the way that I am is something that is attractive and that that's, that's just the hope that I have. So how does art relate to this prayer? Okay, great. So the, uh, at the, the heart of the icon corner is the same, what, what ought to be at the heart of the, the arrangement of images that you would have in a church, actually. So you would show um, on the left, traditionally, um, Our Lady, uh, very often showing us our, our Lord um, as a boy or as a baby. Um, and this then um, focuses on the humanity of Christ and the fact that he lived historically, he was a human person, um, and that from Our Lady, he got his humanity. Then, in the centre, you have Christ on the cross. Um, and this is the suffering Christ. Of course, he, he died for us that we, um, that we might uh, rise with him. And um, this reminds us of the, that the, uh, the rite of baptism, actually, that so that we die with Christ in baptism, and then we rise with him in communion, and partake of the divine nature in the Eucharist, this sort of triple sacrament. And in a way, we go on that little journey every time. When I dip my fingers into the water in church, by the way, when I go into church, that's reminding me of my spiritual death mm. with Christ. The, the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of the Jordan, um, and, uh, and of baptism. Um, and so that's the, the, the suffering Christ, and I, 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 I always hope to die spiritually with Christ and then be resurrected with him and then on the right hand side you have the risen Christ so this might be a Pantocrita which is a, a blessing Christ where he's holding his hand up in that hand sign that is blessing and he'll be in, in glory or a Christ in majesty where he's seated on a throne and is seated at, at the right hand of the Father um, in heaven um, and of course that's showing him bodily resurrected mm. and ascended into heaven um, and that is our hope um, and by degrees we move there in this life through the Eucharist we partake of the divine nature and so just seeing that uh, threefold portrayal if you like of the life the suffering and death and the resurrection of Christ in those three images that is the personal journey that we take in faith um, in microcosm, weekly and daily, and then in the whole pilgrimage of our life, that is the, that is the pattern of uh, life, um, spiritual death, and resurrection. It, it's, a, it's the pattern um, that, that we follow. And we, so if we uh, pray focusing on those three things, um, and then furthermore, and we can talk a little bit about this, if, if we do meditative or contemplative prayer on those images and think of these themes, then what happens is every time we just see the images, that the whole of that, those themes and that the, um, the story of salvation history is connected in a way, is embodied, if you like, uh, in those three images in some ways. Um, we are reminded and I always liken it to when I see somebody who I haven't seen for a while, all that I know about that person, all that I feel about that person, if I love them, all that love is presented to me in a single moment. I'm struck with it. And, uh, and that's the hope with the, with the icons. Hmm. I'm noticing right now, looking across this courtyard where we're recording this podcast, that there is a series of three icons, and it's just as you described. There's... Uh, on the left, there's this picture of what, what what's happening in the in the first well, panel. Well, th this is the a, a gothic image, and I just ordered these online, and they're, they're, I've varnished them so they can withstand the the, the weather. Uh -huh. um, on the left, we have um, a, a print I found of a gothic image, and I ordered it online, mounted on a wooden board, so it was suitable for being outside in this courtyard. Um, but it, it's Our Lady. Um, addressing our Lord in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. Um, 
and then in the center there is a, a, a crucifixion and on the right there is an iconographic portrayal of the um, Pantocrisa, the blessing Christ. Um, you see that he's holding his hands in a particular way, uh, which is the blessing. So that the, two, the, the thumb and one of the fingers uh, are together. That's the, the number two that indicates the two natures of Christ. And then that leaves three which are held up and that indicates uh, the three persons of, of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and so uh, every time I see those um, I'm reminded of all these aspects that, that I've been describing and you could go on and on the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament is really describing this story of salvation history and there are aspects of those that I can think about um, and that's the beauty of the of visual imagery it represents the whole history if you like of my contemplation my thought about this to me in a single moment furthermore if i pray this when i am uh, elsewhere that i can't i don't have access to these images i can close my eyes and i've prayed with them so often that in my imagination i see them i see those images um, and so it's it is directing not just my sight but my imagination to heavenly things, Cast, you know, set your sights on heavenly things, St. Paul said. Um, now around that you can add uh, particular saints for the day, um, other themes. I have one in my room which has um, other images which support these themes of salvation history. Um, and so these should be at the core of the, of the icon corner. Um, now there's other things that are connected particularly to the the new evangelization that occur to me when I look at these. So um, when Benedict talks of the, of the new evangelization, first of all, he says that we need to show people the art of living joyfully, uh, which is a tall order. I, I, you know, we've got to learn it ourselves first before we can show anybody else. And um, But one of the my beliefs is that that being a catholic uh, it gives me the opportunity for the happiest life that i can have in this world regardless of what's what's happening we talked a little bit about that when we were discussing the vision for you book for example um, but but also this is not something that denies it's a joy that doesn't deny the fact that there is evil and suffering in the world we live in a fallen world and so he says that um, people who do not have the faith, however they appear, they're missing something. And at some level they will know this. And there are certain things that we can communicate to, to people that he feels um, are particularly important. One is um, the fact that there is suffering, but there is a hope that transcends that suffering. Um, that there is a possibility of a consolation, a joy um, that is greater than the suffering we experience. So by transcending, uh, the way I understand that, what I'm thinking of when I say that, is that um, it doesn't necessarily remove the suffering. Um, that it can still be there, but nevertheless there is this um, consolation which allows us to be joyful even in suffering. And it sounds paradoxical, and in some ways it is, but that is the, uh, the wonderful gift, I think, of the, um, of the Christian faith. We engage with life, we don't detach from it, uh, and we can engage with it in the fullest way, um, yet be, be happy. And we needn't be scared of, of, the, of, the, of this life ahead of us. Um, and so uh, the Christ on the cross um, really is, tells me this that, that there is um, consolation he bore all the suffering that I experienced and and so much more all of humanity's suffering in that moment on the cross spiritual and uh, physical um, and so and there is hope because he died and rose from the dead mm -hmm. and united to him I can too um, and that gives me consolation in the present that's the there's no consolation in the here and now without that hope in the future as well. 
Um, and so life after death is very important. And, and mm. we, how do we communicate that in our lives? Um, well, one is that we believe it ourselves through meditation, for example, on this sort of thing and understanding this in our prayer, uh, that this is the, the, the one of the focuses of liturgical prayer, for example. Um, but also people will see that how we deal with suffering um, mm-hmm. that whether or not we are hopeful uh, and that we whether or not we engage with it and acknowledge it but nevertheless um, are at peace in some way through it uh, that that is and that is possible through the Christian life and I have to work hard at it to, that's an ideal but it's there for me if I cooperate with God's grace um, something else that is he refers to which I found very interesting is he talks of people uh, needing justice and judgment. And now the reason I was surprised at this was that uh, one of the, the ways that the Catholic faith, I think wrongly, is often portrayed is that people talk about Catholic guilt as though I feel bad about what I've done, not because what I do is intrinsically bad and therefore my conscience pricks, but because the church tells me it's bad. Um, and if it stopped telling me it was bad, I would have a free, free reign. Now, I know from my own experience that isn't true, that sin makes me feel bad um, because deep down I know it, whether or not the church tells me. That. In fact, it's the opposite. The church tells me that, that in order to offer me the solution, which is to confess my sins and then be freed of it uh, and be forgiven. And so there is just judgment. In other words, the judgment is made but it is merciful. Mm. Um, but we can't reach that point of, of needing mercy until we are aware that, that the judgment is made. This is bad. Um, so uh, how, can, how can I do that? Well, what reminds me of this is that, that actually something about the, um, the images of Christ that you see, um, it's... Uh, striking in some iconographic images particularly that he almost has a sternness about him Um, and this one is not so stern the one we have here but some of them um, I'll post some up on the on the blog Uh, the one actually in the vision for you book is one that was painted like this so there are some things going on He, he should look at peace he should there should be a sense of compassion and mercy but also, Christ is the judge, um, but he is a just judge. And so, to a certain degree, that sternness is built in uh, very often in images uh, to, to remind us that we do need to face judgment. But this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing because we're going to suffer regardless as a result of, our, of what we do. Um, what Christianity offers us is that true um, the truth about this so that then we can be free because Christ takes all that suffering that we experience through our own making onto himself on the cross it's all compressed into that moment those moments in the passion which he did willingly for us which is amazing when I think of how free I am as a result of confession for example and everything I leave behind there that's just me where does it all go? And I think it goes to Christ on the cross. He bore that for me, and not just me, all the millions of people who've confessed sins. I, I, can't, I can't even imagine what it was like. I, I was miserable before I became Catholic, and to have that multiplied a million, a billion times over is extraordinary, I think. Yeah. This is profound, this idea that uh, you're saying is uh, discussed or, or that Pope Benedict lays out as part of this uh, the, the necessity of the domestic church to kind of first enter into the the suffering, but then have a joy that that transcends it. And so, if I can kind of summarize what I think you're saying with what the, the icons re- represent a pattern, which is the life, death, and resurrection, which mirrors our own personal transformation of kind of entering into the uh, suffering of this world, recognizing that it, that it is real, not trying to put a Band-Aid on it, rep- realizing it to its full extent, and then being able to 
come out of it with the the joyful and, and hopeful message of the resurrection, the hopeful reality. Um, and it makes me think of something that uh, I've kind of been making a little bit of a connection to an experience that I had with a particular form of cognitive therapy before discovering the church or uh, the, the, the truth of, about Jesus Christ was that um, I was struggling with kind of intrusive thoughts, uh, painful, imagining painful things that could happen to me. Um, and it, it was uh, recommended to me that I intentionally set aside time to expose myself to those thoughts and try to even make them more intense if possible. Um, and this exposure therapy is supposed to eventually paradoxically reduce the anxiety associated with it. And I think that there's kind of a mirror in this, you know, if you, when you look at the cross, it's almost like, uh, but, but going beyond just therapy and, and into this territory of really supernatural transformation, it's, uh, it, it does to some extent bring you into the, uh, the experience, albeit to an extremely limited degree, but just by thinking on it and meditating on it, you internalize some of the, the reality of the horror of sin and, and et cetera. Uh, but then one of my problems with, with exposure therapy was always, you know, th there could be times when you would just imagine, you know, well, if, if it's possible that some of these painful fates could befall me, um, what is, what is there to kind of comfort me or how can I rationally assess that, uh, that the world is not just as bad as I imagine it is when, I, when I'm at my, my worst point. Um, so that, yeah, just that's sort of a connection where uh, this, this process and this pattern, um, even, even from sort of a secular point of view, could be, could be justified. Um, but one of the other things that, that you touched on, and I want to get a little bit deeper into it, is the, the idea that we can't affect this transformation on our own. Um, how is it, and what different forms of prayer uh, are there that, that can uh, help us affect this transformation? And why is it that it's not something that we can possibly accomplish just on our own? Well, we, we can't, you know, a sick person can't, a sick mind can't think itself better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, but we need God's grace. We need God's grace. And, and the, those three forms of prayer that I described, the liturgical, the paraliturgical, and the personal, um, all have their, their pl place to play. And for me, that it really is a pattern of Sunday liturgy, Sunday mass, um, I pray the Psalms regularly, I, the Liturgy of the Hours, um, and then daily um, what I do is I have a, uh, a meditation in which I list, uh, and people will recognize this from an earlier podcast, I list, I list positive things that have happened during the day and I praise God for them, this gratitude list. Um, I focus on my resentments and my fears um, and acknowledge how it's always my self-centeredness that um, causes these and this mm. is part of my daily routine and I do it actually in this courtyard in front when the sun's shining um, and do the, the sort of analysis of it and ask for God's forgiveness um, and then I do some um, contemplative prayer mm. and this is something that is this is interesting as well um, and I find visual imagery very powerful in helping me with this. Now, um, in the, the way that the, the meditation and contemplation, these phrases today tend to have, uh, tend to uh, conjure up images of Buddhist temples and the East. And, um, and that's because I believe it's because of the Beatles and Maharishi Yogi popularizing Eastern forms of meditation. You're saying contemplative prayer or meditation? Well, that the two are very often conflated, I yeah. think. So people use me meditation. And then in, in the West, we talk about con contemplative prayer. But I think a lot of people will assume that we're talking about meditation, which is just like uh, people think of a mantra they think of you know, eliminating thought, mm -hmm. uh, these sort of things. Um, <clears throat> and 
Unfortunately, in response to this, there have been some Christian meditation techniques that have been developed as sort of Christianized versions of the Eastern thing. Mm. Now, in my opinion, that's the wrong approach. What, what that has done is to um, actually, uh, people will see that and they'll recognize that the truest, purest form of that sort of meditation is Buddhist or Hindu, is from the East, and therefore they're going to seek that out if it has benefits. Whereas, in fact, Christian mysticism um, has a very strong, and I think much richer and more beneficial, for me anyway, um, uh, tradition of, of meditation and contemplation. And they mean quite specific things which are different from um, what people think of um, today. And um, that's what I do, and I use visual imageries. And I do this sitting in front of the icon corner um, refreshing my memory, if you like, with the images as I do my meditation, and then sometimes with eyes closed, but sort of imagining that image in my mind. And I can, um, I can describe that technique if, uh, to you. I mean, do you have any questions or yeah? Well, so I'm I'm interested in kind of exploring this question a little bit more about you know Eastern versus Western, um, and you you talk about Western mysticism, but. It's not, uh, that might be a little bit of a misnomer, given that a lot of the, you know, the, I mean, the origin of uh, certain forms of Christian prayer can be dated back to, you know, the Desert Fathers, or they're, they're I don't think would be necessarily considered Western, or I mean, do you date Western to back to St. Benedict, or is it is it earlier, or what, <laughs> uh, when well, does I, it become Western? Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm using Western in the sense of um, to distinguish it from Eastern religions, but but Buddhism. you're quite right. But uh, right. but I mean really Christian, the Christian tradition, yeah. uh, and that cert most certainly includes Eastern Christianity. Um, so um, and the Desert Fathers and the Eastern Church. So um, yes, I, you're, you're quite right to pick me up on that. Um, but what what I use Western. Um, when I'm talking to people today mm -hmm. who are not particularly thinking about the Eastern Rite or something in Christianity, yeah, to to, dis, to to reinforce the traditions upon which the West was built, which is Christian, and say there is mysticism there, but you're quite right. Once we get into it, we can see that these traditions are Christian. They're in all traditionally in both. Um, lungs, if you like, of the Christian Church, East and West, um, and meditation and uh, contemplation have a similar sort of meaning in both cases. Okay, um, it would be a bit of a detour, I think, to get uh, into you know all of the different kinds of uh, Christian prayer that have been um, coming back into uh, in, in, into people's consciousness, or that that they've sort of rediscovered dating back to the Desert Fathers. There's one, uh, there's a mailing list that I subscribe to by uh, uh, an author of some books on contemplative prayer. He talks about centering prayer and um, miaphysitism and kind of, I think that that relates to, uh, it's, a, it's a formula holding that the, you know, the person of Jesus Christ is both fully divine and fully human. And so meditating on this particular idea the two, uh, the two, uh, being united, kind of without separation, or this is a uh, one of those paradoxes or or things that um, I feel like could almost reach uh, people who are interested in Eastern prayer on a deeper level, showing them how there there is content to the prayer. It's not a complete emptying, but it it is a it's a silent prayer. It's a wordless prayer. And it's not about um, you know uttering a mantra or, or uh, yeah any any I, I thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think I think this can be very fruitful. I haven't done I've I've read a little bit about centering prayer, um, but, but I think that the point that needs to be made is that this is not um, a couple of things. First of all, how we feel during this is not the the end we're seeking. Mm -hmm. um, this is forming us ultimately to encounter God. 
And for most of us, that is most powerfully encountered in the liturgy. So in other words, the end towards this, is, which is directed, is the liturgy. And one of the things that disappointed me a little bit, and again, I've only, I haven't read a lot of, about the centering prayer, for example, so it might be in there somewhere, but I wish he would emphasize that the consummation of this is encountering Christ in the Eucharist. This mm. is where we grasp those truths most fully, that it, it, it's enabling us to, to it's en- it will enrich that encounter if we do it. And that is where the power is, if you like. Now, God is not restricted by the sacraments. He can um, act wherever he likes in, in whatever way he wishes. And so there can be profound experiences as a result of this. Um, but as a general principle, that's something that I would always stress, that, um, that this, is, this is done to serve our life as Christians, mm-hmm. which is the worship of God and the love of man, love of God and love of man. And if it's really bearing fruit, it's there that we'll see it, is what, is what I think. Okay. Um, the other thing that I would mention, just one technique, which is uh, very common, is something that is called Lexio Divina, uh, which is divine reading. Uh, Benedict, Saint Benedict, refers to this in his rule, and I presume he's drawing on the tradition. He doesn't, he don't get the impression he invented it, um, and it was codified in sort of a certain structure uh, later than him. Uh, but by this, what what it involves is. Um, Really, we, we invite the Holy Spirit in, then we read, there's a, um, we nourish, uh, we, we, we take in information. So in Lexio Divina, it's the Word of God in Scripture. Um, but you could do an equivalent of that where you're looking at an image, for example, and mm-hmm. thinking about it. But you're taking in information, God is speaking to you, then you're thinking meditatio you're meditating and meditate means think it's it's a use of the conscious mind it's, it's not an emptying it really does mean i'm directing my thoughts in a certain way so then we think about what god might be saying to us and, and to a certain degree it's responding to thoughts that come into our mind uh, looking at it thinking about the image just reflecting on it um, and then comes contemplation which is something that's distinct and that is a more receptive, passive uh, frame of mind, S- similar in some ways to what you described with the centering prayer. It's, it's, it can be wordless or it can be something. I, w- I repeat the Jesus prayer, the way that I quieten my mind and sit in a sort of expectation to see whether God will communicate something to me and be receptive to him, um, is say the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I just imagine, I, I, I repeat it mm-hmm. and just say it ever more quietly in my thoughts. But, mm-hmm. but if I find my thoughts straying, I go back to the Jesus prayer. But again, God may speak to me directly in this process. And that, that, is, that is contemplation. You're ready for that. And St. Teresa of Avila, for example, there's a, there's a carving by Bernini, a sculpture of her in ecstasy. Um, when God is... Uh, really speaking to her direct in, mm. in this sort of contemplative phase. Um, now I've never had that um, uh, that I'm aware of. If, if, it, if I, I, I presume it's not possible for it to happen and not notice it. Um, but um, what I do feel is that even if um, I'm not aware of anything concrete coming out of that period of alert receptivity, if you mm-hmm. like. Um, what it is doing is developing that faculty within me to be receptive to the love of others mm. and primarily, of course, to the love of God in the, in the, in the Mass, in the Eucharist, yeah. in the Sunday liturgy. So it's forming me to be receptive. And this, again, comes back to these themes that he wrote about, that Benedict wrote about in the New Evangelization, he explores in much greater depth than his encyclicals, actually. It's almost as, it, he's amazingly consistent in his thought, as though everything is sort of developing in this pattern. But remember, he wrote an encyclical called Spe Salvi, which is about this, uh, exploring this idea of hope. Um, but um, he also talks about um, the dynamic of love in Caritas in Veritate, which is um, simultaneously the giving of oneself and the receiving of the other. 
mm-hmm. and the receiving of the other is he calls eros it's it's a, a a transformed desire for the other which can be very destructive of course but always when we love we seek the other and we receive the love of the other while at the same time giving and the giving he calls agape mm. and the receiving he calls eros and these two are in parallel and so that um, meditation and contemplation is in time if you like uh, directing us to develop those faculties I think for agape and eros mm. which will be practiced one hopes just instinctively in, 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 the, in the worship of God um, but you know we can develop our instincts through good habits yeah I want to direct people to a blog post that you wrote uh, called The New Evangelization and the Domestic Church Pope Benedict XVI on the connection between the two uh, where you have a lot of these images of icon corners and uh, the next episode that, that we do is going to be about different kinds of prayer I think so we can maybe come back a little bit more to the domestic church and the reason that uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth is putting an emphasis on this. Uh, I'm going to quote from this uh, address of his uh, given in December of 2011. He writes, uh, The new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. In our time, as in times past, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. And just as the eclipse of God and the crisis of the family are linked, so the new evangelization is inseparable from the Christian family. The family is indeed the way of the church because it is the human space of our encounter with Christ. Spouses not only receive the love of Christ and become a saved community, but they are also called upon to communicate Christ's love to their brethren, thus becoming a saving community. Uh, so how this this relates to what you're talking about with the, the giving and receiving. Yes. And he yes. actually kind of identifies that with salvation. So a married couple becomes saved through this exchange of love. Yeah. Uh, There's so much, he talks so much about this idea of love, of course, but the, I, I hadn't even made that connection I, until I just heard you read it there, mm. that he's, this, this dynamic of giving and receiving um, is there in what he's writing. Um, but he does say also that none of us, in his encyclicals, none of us is capable of loving anybody unless we first receive the love of God. It's, mm. it's, it's something that uh, is driven by grace. And unless we accept that, we can't give. And I think this is true for the most hard-bitten atheists who we, we know are capable of loving mm. uh, their fellows. Um, sometimes to the shame of Christians, even, you, you might say. But th- that means that at some level, they're accepting the grace and the love of God in order to be able to do that. It's a sign of great hope, actually. So if someone is looking to strengthen their own domestic church, uh, what could they do? Uh, what would you recommend? That, where, where should they start uh, for this establishing this school of prayer? I don't know if we talked about that at the beginning but uh, but John Paul refers to the family as the first school of prayer where from their infancy children learn to perceive God thanks to the teaching and example of their parents an authentically Christian education cannot neglect the experience of prayer if we do not learn to pray in the family it will be difficult to fill this gap later so what is your recommendation to to families Uh, to families and again come back to this this idea of single people they're not left out it's it's in the home um, and so I would say that the starting point is the book that I wrote with Lila Lawler called The Little Oratory. Oratory means house of prayer. The Little Oratory, um, begin, the beginner's guide to praying in the home. Um, and this outlines a lot of these principles in a lot, in a lot more detail, the things we've been talking about. Um, and um, I would just say... The, the main thing is to, with all of these things it's in the trying we are successful um, it's the, the thing about prayer I heard um, I heard someone say this this is not my thought but uh, the success of it is not in the um, the effect that it has but in the work we put into it <laughs> and um, it, 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 
if we pray and it becomes a habit, as long as it's good prayer, um, then it is having an effect on us um, and it is preparing us in this, the, the way that we've described. Whether aware of it or not, there'll be periods of dryness, but it's the general picture for me in doing this and persevering with this is one of a life of increasing happiness, actually. Yep. Uh, the same address that I quoted from, from St. Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict earlier, uh, emphasizes the role of men and fathers in particular uh, as examples of people who lead prayer. Um, this is something that, you know, comes up as kind of a hot button topic or, you know, where are the fathers? There's this question. Um, what, what do you think, um, what can you contribute to that conversation as a... Uh, <laughs> Well, the, the way that husbands and wives interact um, it has changed. I, I, the, that's the impression I get. Anyway, I see, I know what is the pattern today, generally, um, and I have a sense of what it used to be like. So uh, if you were to characterize the stereotype, there used to be this idea of the sort of author, authoritarian dad and everybody meekly following. Um, now, Regardless of how that develops, um, I, I think that the Christian ideal is one in which each is seeking to uh, love and serve the other, um, and so no one can has absolute power over anybody else. Each has free will, um, and that's true in hus with husbands and wives. So exactly how that dynamic works itself out in, in, harmoniously uh, will develop on different people, I think, but. Um, nevertheless, I do hold to what St. Paul talks about as the father being the head of the family, who's prepared to lay down his life for the family as, as, um, as Christ was his head of the church and laid down his life for the church. But what does that mean beyond the, the way that the two people interact, which they will work out harmoniously, and I don't want to get into that. And that might have changed over the years, perhaps beneficially, actually, in the way that men and women talk to each other, I don't know. But one thing that I would say is that there is a natural role of the father as advocate to the father, to, to God, on behalf of the family. And Christ is the head of the church in that he's primarily the advocate for the church to the father. Mm. And so I think the example of the father leading prayer um, is, is very, very important in this. And inviting the others... Um, and ideally others will join in. Sometimes they're simply not able to, so, yeah, but if the father can make that sacrifice of doing it, and even if he does it on his own, people will know that he's making that sacrifice of prayer for the family on some sort of regular basis. And I think, again, if he goes to the image, the, the domestic church, the, the, the home altar, the icon corner, mm -hmm. and is facing it, even if he's not singing his prayers out loud, people will know, they'll see what he's doing, and they will know that he's praying for them. And, and it's not just for himself, that he's doing that for the family. And I think that will have a, um, a tremendous impact spiritually on uh, binding the family together and nourishing it. Um, not just as a result of the prayer, but just in ordinary terms of the example of prayer that the Father gives the others that um, I always think that um, it's a huge responsibility being a parent especially today where all the modern psychology says you know if you get it wrong your kids are messed up for life and you know you, you don't do anything you know and you get conflicting advice and I think that one of the great reliefs is to acknowledge that while I am your parent and so therefore you must follow my directions, at mm. least when you're a minor, um, that I acknowledge that there is one who, I am not the standard of perfection that you're looking for. Right. There is one who is greater than me, and I acknowledge that, and that is God. And to see somebody humbling themselves before God um, in prayer, and that it will, they will understand that that is what is going on because he'll be venerating the images, mm. um, is very powerful, I think, in transmitting the, the sense that it will avoid 
help to mitigate against is probably a better way of putting it this disillusionment in parental authority <laughs> as people get older they think well you're not you're not as good as you thought you were you know that that sort of thing there is a, there is a standard to which each of us um, to various degrees of success um, aspires to yeah so we've covered a lot of ground we've talked about how the tradition of home altars emerged in uh, Roman houses we've talked about the link between uh, the personal the, the supernatural transformation that occurs through prayer and how that enables us to become better disciples and better uh, missionaries with this this joy that can transcend the the suffering of a fallen world and we've talked about different form of prayer uh, liturgical paraliturgical and personal prayer uh, as well as the images that that represent that uh, that that kind of trifold um, pattern of of the life, death, and resurrection that we hope to mirror when we bring our own joy into into a fallen world. Uh, and we've also talked about uh, how the domestic church is important to uh, being kind of a a core of of the church and being a school of prayer. Are there any ideas that we did not cover or that uh, closing comments that you want to make here? Um, no, I think that's a, a great summary, Charlie. Thank you. Um, perhaps just one thing is that the the praying of the Liturgy of the Hours is something we're going to cover at some point in the future. I know you brought this up because it's it, it can in itself be mystifying that half the... It's a, it's a meditation in itself, I think, trying to work out how some of those books work. So... The success is in the trying. <laughs> yes. Uh, it helps to get guidance on these things, is what I would say. Um, seek out others who want to do it with you, so at least you can uh, explore together or seek a, someone who can guide you through this. Which is always very, very helpful. Yeah, I think you mentioned in one of your blog posts that for the single person, uh, having a spiritual director can be one of the ways to, you know, not necessarily fill in the it's not like you're filling in a gap of uh of, of not not being married but that somehow can kind of well i think we need um relationships and i, I mean i would recommend spiritual guidance to anybody whether married or, or single um but it's i think because i was uh I've been single for so much of my life. Uh, it's something that I'm particularly sensitive to, that all the language is about families, it yeah. seems. And that's understandable. That's, that, that, is the sort of, um, from, that is the situation that most people are in. Um, but there are alternatives for single people. So not only the spiritual director, but th there are others with whom we can have um, relationships in community which are appropriate to what they are they're not identical to family relationships um, but through that no one need feel lonely or isolated in this this is the this is so important um, I think you've been listening to the way of beauty podcast conversations on Catholic faith and culture for more information go to the way of and if you want to buy the book, go to Amazon.com.